0: This will be the final sermon in our walk through the book of James. It started over three years ago. Um, This letter was written by James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. And it's a powerful and practical letter that has proven to be just as relevant for us today as it was in the time that it was written. And I think you'll see that today will be no different as we walk through James' final instructions So we're going to dive in. If you would turn with me to James chapter 5. We're going to start reading in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray together. God, as we walk through this text today, my prayer as it is each week is that you would open our ears to hear from you. Open our eyes that we might see you as we walk through these words of this text. And God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O God, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Before we get into this, I want to remind us of where we've come from. Because as we'll see, James wraps up his letter in a beautiful and powerful way. So as I mentioned earlier, James is a letter written by James the Apostle. He was the half-brother of Jesus, and he was also the leader of the church at Jerusalem. This letter was written to people in his congregation who were forced to flee Jerusalem following the stoning of Stephen when intense persecution broke out against Christians, as we read about in Acts chapter 7-8. and So that, in a nutshell, is the background of the letter. Following his customary greetings... James starts his letter in chapter one by saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when life is good. No, wait a minute. That's not right. That's not what he says, is it? In fact, he says the opposite. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is countercultural right from the beginning. How does it make any sense to have joy in the midst of trial? Why should I have joy in the midst of trial? James answers that question in verse 3 of chapter 1 when he says, because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Do you remember what that word means? We talked about that at length. It means patient endurance. Okay? It carries with it the idea of being able to bear up under something, under a significant weight. Steadfastness, James says in verse 4 of chapter 1, when it has had its full effect, leads to perfection. Now, remember as well, this is not referring to a sinless perfection. This is referring to a spiritual maturity. So steadfastness, when it's had its full effect, it leads to perfection or spiritual maturity and completeness, so that you lack nothing. I love how when you read the scripture, you see things over and over again. You see the same ideas presented by different authors. This is the reason that Paul can say in Philippians chapter 4 that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not a sports reference, okay? We see it used all the time by athletes. It's not a sports reference. He's rejoicing in God's provision. He says, I have learned that in whatever situation I'm in, to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The testing of our faith produces steadfastness, which leads to spiritual maturity and completeness. So that in any and every situation we can know that we lack nothing. We have everything that we need. And it is Christ who strengthens us. It's the reason that a Christian family of seven living in a tent in a camp of displaced people in northern Iraq with neighbors who would like to kill them can say, we have everything that we need. We are happy. That's from the book that's out on the table. If you haven't grabbed one, I want to encourage you to grab one and read it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Just a few verses later, in chapter 1, verse 12, James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And then the rest of the book is a series of trials and tests that prove genuine faith. This short little book is a call to examine our lives. How do we respond under pressure? Last time we walked through verses 7 through 12, we talked about how genuine faith is patient in the midst of mistreatment or suffering. James tells us to be patient in suffering, and then again he repeats what he said in chapter 1. Verse 11 says, "...those who remain steadfast are blessed." And that's where we come to today. Here he gets really practical, as if he hasn't already been very practical, but he gets very practical here. He asks a series of questions. Considering all that I've said, is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone cheerful? Is anyone of you sick? And what's the answer? Prayer. Prayer and praise. From verses 13 through 18, prayer is mentioned in each verse. And it's mentioned a total of eight times if you include praise. And I think you should because I think that praise is a form of prayer. These verses are all about one subject, one topic, and that is prayer. Throughout this letter, James has called the church to patient endurance, to strengthen their hearts, to suffer without complaint, to take affliction like Job did, and to do it they will have to be a people committed to prayer. So we're gonna break this down into kind of four sections today. I'm gonna to look at prayer in relationship to four different things. The first of those is comfort. Prayer and comfort. Read with me again verse thirteen. Is anyone among you suffering? He asks. Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you suffering? Suffering is the same word that was used back in verse 10. It means to suffer evil or afflictions. Now, I think this is more of a rhetorical question that James is asking because he would know already that many were suffering. They were being persecuted. They've possibly faced beatings and abuse and mistreatment. They are in distress. And so James tells them to pray. Turn to the God of all comfort. Remember what Peter says in his letter. Familiar verses, I'm sure. Cast all your cares on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. He is the God of all comfort. In Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, he says these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort." who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. How many times did I just read the word comfort in those two verses? The word pray here that James uses means a continual pleading. When life isn't going the way that you thought it would, Continually plead to God for comfort. This is a basic truth, but it is so easily forgotten. On the flip side of that, James says, if you're cheerful, then sing praise. Both of these are related to the spirit. He's not talking about physical things here. If you're crushed in spirit, pray. If you're whole in spirit, rejoice, praise. Both prayer and praise are basic to spiritual comfort. God is the source of all comfort and we find comfort in him through both prayer and praise. This leads us to the next thing which is comes in verses 14 and 15, prayer and restoration. James moves beyond the person who is suffering here. And I was talking to Mike a little bit before the service. This is where I spent most of my time this week in these two verses. And what I've discovered is that I am going to read these verses differently than I have in the past from now on. And I'll explain why as we walk through this. And I want you to kind of hang with me as we walk through this. But I think James here is moving beyond the person who is suffering to the one who has lost the ability to endure suffering. The Greek word that is translated as sick here in English, in fact, it's that way in every English translation, it's the Greek word astheneo. There are several terms in the New Testament that can refer to sickness, but that is not this word's primary meaning. Asthaneo can and it is used to refer to sickness in the New Testament, but here the primary meaning of the word is to be weak. It's to be feeble. It's to be weary from work. It often, it's often described as a spiritual weakness. In both the letters and in the book of Acts, it's used most of the time for this kind of weakness. I want to read through some of those just so you understand where I'm going with this. In Romans chapter 4, verses 18 and following, James, uh, sorry, Paul is talking about Abraham. He says, in hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith, but, sorry, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So verse 19, he said, He did not weaken in faith. That's the same word, astheneo. He did not weaken in faith. Romans 8.3 For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Romans 14.1 as for the one who is weak in faith, same word there, Asthaneo, the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Same word. And then 2 Corinthians twelve ten, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, Same word, when I am weak, then I am strong. It's a term that mostly has to do with weakness and most often with spiritual weakness. So, if we put this into James 5 in the way that it's most commonly used in the New Testament letters, it would read like this Is any among you weak? Some of you are suffering. Pray. Some of you are weak. You're defeated. Maybe persecution has brought you to that place or perhaps sin has brought you to that place. But if you've hit rock bottom, sometimes it's hard to pray. You may not be able to pray effectively. So what do you do? You've got to find someone else to pray for you. You've got to get someone else in the battle with you. And James says, go to the elders of the church. Why? Because they are the spiritual strength that you need. They're meant to be and should be the spiritual leaders in your congregation. I found this so interesting this week. I want you to turn back quickly with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. In Acts 6, complaints are coming to the apostles because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Look what, look what Luke says and records in verse 2. It says, The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, Whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to, what does it say? Prayer and the ministry of the word. Elders and church leaders are to give themselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. A ministry of prayer. It's to come alongside the spiritually wounded, the broken hearted, people at the bottom who don't have the strength to call on God themselves. This is the pastoral duty of the elder to come alongside the weary, defeated Christian and on behalf of that individual, lift up prayers to God. James says, call for the elders. That word call means to have someone come alongside you. Now, does this mean that if you are sick physically with an illness or disease that you can't call on your elders, on the elders of the church to pray for you? No, absolutely not. But I think primarily what James is getting at here is he's talking about those who are weak in the faith. Because of the intense persecution that they have felt, perhaps because of sin in their life, they are weak and unable to stand on their own. And James is saying you need to call on the elders of the church to pray for you. You need someone to walk alongside you in this battle. So what about this oil business that he mentions in verse 14? This was interesting to look at too. This is more than a ceremonial drop of oil on the forehead. Again, there's nothing wrong with that, but the word that's used here doesn't mean that. The word that's used here in the Greek means to rub, to rub or to oil something. I want to give you a couple of pictures that might help us understand what this means. I've been a follower of the Tour de France for many, many years. I absolutely love it. Um, I've been watching some of it this week, catching up, um, since they're hours ahead of us. But if you aren't familiar with the Tour de France, it's a bicycle race, three-week-long bike race around France. Sometimes it starts in other neighboring countries, and then, but eventually most of it is, takes place in France. In fact, a number of years ago, they started in England, and I got to go to London for a day and watch one of those stages finish in London. It was amazing. But these riders are some of the most amazing athletes on the planet. They sit in the saddle of a bike for four to five hours each day, pushing their bodies to the limit across flat plains, and up some incredibly steep mountain slopes. And at the end of each day's stage, you can imagine the pain that their legs are in. You see them cross the finish lines, and often they're unable to even stand on their own for a while. They have people on their teams whose sole purpose is to take care of them physically, to help their bodies recover so that they can get back on the bike the next day and do it all over again. They're given massages to work out the soreness in their legs, to rejuvenate and to restore their muscles. And this is the picture here in James. The elders, through prayer and encouragement and discipleship, are massaging and restoring the spiritual muscles of weak and broken brothers and sisters who are unable to stand on their own. Here's another way to think about it. How many of you have seen The Wizard of Oz? Okay, okay. One of my favorite characters is the Tin Man. So, some of his backstory is that he was chopping wood in the forest one day and it started to rain. Because he's made of metal, his whole body seizes up and rust begins to set in. And soon he's unable to move. He's frozen in his rusted state. Then along comes Dorothy, and the only thing that the Tin Man can do is make noises through his lips that are sealed shut. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Through his noises, he's able to ask Dorothy for help. Dorothy grabs the oil can that's sitting, sitting beside him and starting with his mouth, and then eventually oiling his whole body, oiling every joint so that he can move about as he was intended to. He asked her for help, and she came alongside him, and oiled his joints. When spiritual weakness is set in and we are unable to move, we can call on the elders and church leaders to come alongside us and pray for us. That's the shepherd's ministry. That's the ministry of caring. It's a ministry of restoration, and it's done in the name of the Lord because that is what Christ would do. Then there's verse 15 says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. This isn't the word for sick, as in illness or disease. It's a different word, even from what was used in verse 14. It's the word chemnanta, I don't know how you pronounce it. And it means to be weary. It's only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, where it says this, Consider him, him being Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against him, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Same meaning here in James 5. People in the midst of persecution are sometimes fixing their eyes on their troubles and not on their Savior. They're not able to endure. They grow weary. They lose heart. The prayer of faith will restore the weary. And here is such a great promise that James declares for us. The Lord will raise him up. The Lord will renew and restore and awaken the weary. Verse 15 goes on to say, And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Not all weariness is related to sin, but sometimes it is. And when a person comes and calls on the elders to pray, confessing that sin, God will forgive Forgiven means to send away. The sin that binds is gone. Such a beautiful picture of the ministry of restoration that pastors and elders are to be engaged in. The elders here at LifePoint are a group of guys who want nothing more than to see weary, broken-hearted Christians restored and made whole again. They're not perfect themselves. They get weary and weak at times as well. And they call on one another and they pray. If any among you are weary, call on the elders of the church and let them pray over you. Let's move on to the next point. First part of verse 16. Let's talk about prayer and fellowship. James says in verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You may have noticed as we move through this passage that James talks about different groups of people. He starts with the individual, and then he talks about elders, pastors, church leaders, and now he's talking about the whole congregation. One of the things that we stress here at Life Point is the importance of the body. Of belonging. We have four core values worship, connect, serve, and go. The second one, being connect. Maintaining relationships with other believers is vital to your spiritual health. James says here that part of being in the body of Christ is confession of sin to one another. It's it's a big element of fellowship, mutual honesty and confession of sin. Church, sin wants you alone. Sin wants to isolate you. Sin doesn't want anybody else to know. James indicates here that confession of sin brings healing. This word healing can mean physical healing, but it can also be used for deliverance, salvation, or spiritual restoration. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So again, this word could mean physical healing, but I believe in this context of James, it means that God will make you whole again. So I want to recap before we move on to the fourth point. If you're suffering, pray continually. If you've hit the bottom because of intense persecution or by your own sin, seek out the spiritually strong who will come alongside you and pray for you and massage your spirit with encouragement and discipleship. Get your sin out. Confess it to God and He will raise you up. And then, to prevent you from getting to that point of desperation, share your burdens with one another And pray for each other. Here at LifePoint we meet in small groups. That we call life groups. It's in these small groups where relationships deepen. And where this kind of confession and prayer can happen. Praying together for one another is a beautiful thing. It's an expectation that if you are a church member here at LifePoint. That you're also part of a life group. And we don't apologize for that. I know many of you who are not currently involved in a life group and I want to challenge you, even urge you today to get plugged in. I never, never leave our life group regretting that I came and took part. I never leave regretting that I came and took part. I hear the excuse sometimes that small groups just aren't for me. I'm sorry, but that's a lame and that's a selfish excuse. Why are you making this about you in the first place? Someone else in that small group may need you. You might be the arm that someone else needs to lean on. By sitting on the sidelines and not getting involved, you may be robbing someone else of the blessing that you could be in their lives. And you're also robbing someone else of the blessing that they could be in your life. We need each other. When we lean on each other and we share our weaknesses with one another, when we pray for one another, we can prevent the dark desperation and the spiritual weakness that can cause us to need to call on the elders of the church in the first place. We need each other. It's vital to our lives as Christ followers. It's never meant to be done alone. It's meant to be done as a body. So lastly, in this this section, James talks about prayer and power. Last half of verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is really very simple and straightforward. Prayer is powerful. And when righteous people pray, it is effective. It's energetic. That's the idea that's being conveyed here. A righteous person praying for you is powerful. It energizes. It encourages. The prayers of people who are dealing with sin in their lives. Remember, we all all wrestle with sin. Yes? Anybody immune? No? But when we're walking with Christ, we deal with that sin. So the prayers of people who are dealing with sin in their lives and living rightly before God are powerful. We have an amazing opportunity for prayer ministry for each other. And we have a responsibility to come alongside one another. To emphasize this, James gives us an illustration in verses 17 and 18. Let me get back here. It says... <clears throat> Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit when you go back to 1 Kings chapter 17-18 and 18, this is where um, James is referencing you see what James means Elijah was just like us he was a man that got hungry. He was a man that was afraid. He was a man that was tired. He was just a man. He was strong at points, but he was weak at points. But he prayed earnestly, he prayed fervently. What's really cool about this illustration is that it fits perfectly with what James has been saying. James wanted to illustrate how God sent down refreshing rain on dry, parched land. He's been talking about the weak, dry, parched Christian who needs the refreshing rain of God to restore him. God sent the the rain in response to the prayers of Elijah, a powerful, righteous man, and in response to the prayers of powerful, righteous people, He sends restoration and refreshing to those who are struggling and weak. This is the ministry of prayer, and it's vital in the life of the church. James shifts gears here one last time as the letter ends. He's going to call on the church to pursue the wanderer. Throughout this letter, James has made a call for genuine, real, saving faith. It's a call for self-examination. There's an assumption made in this letter that there are people in the church who are associated with and identify with the church, but who are not genuine. They have a dead faith that produces nothing. And James here is urging the church to call them back. To call those whose faith is less than genuine to come to true faith. They've wandered from the truth. Jesus said in John 8.31, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Now hear me on this. Wandering from the truth is not, it is not a characteristic of a true Christian. A true Christian will never reject the truth of the gospel. A true Christian may fall into sin and be disobedient, but they are not going to wander away from saving truth. This is what we call the security of the believer. We talked about it before, so I'm not going to spend much time there today, but our faith as Christ followers is secure in Him. So what is James saying here is the duty of the believer? It's to pursue the one's whose faith is not genuine. Jesus said that he came to seek and save the lost. And he has given us as his church the responsibility of continuing to seek and pursue the lost. We don't do the saving. We don't have that power. Christ does the saving. But we seek people out and we call them to repentance. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 17 and following, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of, of reconciliation, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Christ has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We have the task of calling people to be reconciled with God. And what a beautiful thing it is when the pursued wanderer comes to salvation. Their sins are covered, James says. They are rescued from death. Paul finishes that chapter in 2 Corinthians with these words. He ends with a plea. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I make that same plea to you today. If you're in this room or you're watching online and you've been wandering, perhaps claiming a faith in Christ, but only talking the talk, not walking the walk. If that's you, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I want to show you something as we wrap up today. And I want to have a conversation, if you will, with each of you. Now, obviously, I can't speak to each of you individually. So I want you to just simply respond in the quietness of your heart and have a conversation with me. I think you would agree that we live in a world that is broken. We see evidence around us of that all the time, every day. Fill in the blank. Life could be so much better if... If you feel that life could be better, then that alone is evidence that our world is broken. But it wasn't always that way. In the beginning, God created a world that was perfect, free from brokenness that we find ourselves in now. It was his perfect design. But we find ourselves living in brokenness because we decided that we wanted to do things our way rather than following God. The Bible calls this sin. Sin could be anything from lying to murder. And that sin created a separation between us and God, throwing us into our brokenness. Now we try all, all kinds of things to try to fix ourselves. We might pursue money or fame or Relationships to try and satisfy ourselves, or we might lean on drugs and alcohol to drown out the sorrows of our lives. But all of these things are like bungee cords. They might help for a short time, but inevitably, if you stretch a bungee cord out for too long, it will snap, and then we find ourselves right back where we started in our brokenness. Ultimately, if we die, in that state of brokenness, then we die separated from God. And that's eternal. There's no way back. But God loved us so much. He didn't, want us, he didn't want to leave us in a state of brokenness. He had a plan from the beginning. And that plan was Jesus. You see, Jesus is God. He came down from heaven and lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He became the perfect sacrifice for us and laid his life down on the cross at Calvary. And then he victoriously rose from the grave three days later. His death paid the penalty for our sin. And then he said, if we would turn from our sin and follow him and we would make Jesus king of our lives, then we would be restored back into God's perfect design for our lives. We would become a new creation, a new person in Christ, back in a restored relationship with Him. Now the Bible tells us that we are in one of two places, only two options. Either we are living in brokenness, or we are living in God's perfect design. So I have two questions for you today. First, If you're honest, if you're honest with yourself right now, where would you say that you are? And second, where would you like to be? If you said that you're in God's perfect design, remember, we're having a conversation. So I hope that you're answering these questions. If you said that you're in God's perfect design, that is awesome. Praise God for new life in Christ. Praise God that you are a new creation. You have been given the ministry of reconciliation as a new creation in Christ. And as we've looked at today, you need to pursue those who are wandering. Now I'm guessing that that's probably most of us in this room today. Who can you share this with today? I'm sure even as I've been talking, you're thinking of people God's bringing to mind people in your life that are far from God. And according to James, it's our job to pursue them. So who can you share this with today? If you said that you're in brokenness, then again, as I said earlier, I would implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Is there anything... That is stopping you from turning and following Jesus today. You can talk to God right where you're sitting. You can confess your sin and declare your desire to follow Him. You can do that today, and you can know that your sins are forgiven and that your relationship with God is restored. Well, you might be saying, "Well, my my sins too great." My sins are too many. Our sins are too many. But praise God, his mercy is more. We're going to sing about that in a minute. God's mercy is more. If you're in this room or you're watching online, I implore you, Turn from your sin and follow Jesus because he is worth it. If you're in the room today and you're suffering, pray. We are not good. We're just not. As the church, as a whole, we are not good at prayer. I know that there are some people in this church who are prayer warriors, and I praise God for you. But as a church, we are not good at prayer. And that's something that I've been challenged on in my own life this week as I've studied this. I want to be the kind of person who someone can come and say, hey, will you pray for me? I want us to be that kind of church that is open to pray for people. If you're suffering today, pray. Pray to the God of all comforts. If you're weak today and you find that you just can't even manage to pray, then call on the elders, leaders of the church, spiritual leaders in your lives to pray for you. Don't do this alone. Call someone to come alongside you to pray. Let's pray together.